Hello. Welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Episode 11. The Limits to Belgian Expansion to the East. Last time we left the Western Congo Basin from Kisangani to the Atlantic coast in the hands of the Belgian King, Leopold II. To avoid a war between themselves in Africa, the Western powers had granted legitimacy to the King as the individual owner. Secondary to the avoidance of war, these powers also believed his propaganda of benevolence and philanthropy. Back in 1885, it was felt that the Congo was left in safe hands to help its development. The conference today is much divided as the manifestation of the land grab that was to come, but at the time the common goal was to support an entity in Central Africa that met the standards of international law and of human rights. It was to support the local powers and, out of mutual interest, they were to develop and integrate with the rest of the world. The Berlin Conference did not specify borders. Central Africa, as far as Europe was concerned, had only been mapped six years prior, and the slices of the magnificent cake, to paraphrase Leopold II, had not yet been cut. From another viewpoint, however, the Europeans had decided that Africa was largely theirs, and the conference provided a framework for what was to be called the Scramble for Africa. This could be achieved without war between the European powers, although the Africans, of course, had little voice in this. In the Congo, roads and steamships meant Leopold's employees could travel safely and unobstructed throughout the Congo Basin. He considered himself to be in a tremendous position to stake an even wider geographical claim. Over 450 separate treaties had been signed with tribal chiefs along the riverbanks and its tributaries, and unbeknown to them, Leopold now considered their ancestral lands his, to do with what he wanted. But he was not the only foreign power in the Congo River Basin. And by foreign power, what I really mean now is a rival who also had a supply of guns. As the Congo Free State expanded further east, it reached Boyoma Falls, near the present-day city of Kisangani. Here, six years since Stanley and his crew dashed through on his epic cross-continental expedition, the Arabs had settled. They were continuing their modus operandi of slavery and ivory trading. Ever thirsting for more land, the Congo Free State also eventually settled here too, establishing a station at the easternmost point of the navigable river basin, now the eastern point of the Congo Free State itself, and the western point of the Arab Swahili traders, where they coexisted in uncomfortable proximity in the middle of the Congo. This was almost at the furthest points from the coastal towns, and their support of their wider, respective civilizations. The Congo Free State Stanley Falls Station itself was built on an island just below the seventh cataract of the falls, whilst the Arabs lived on the riverbanks, much more integrated with the people. Tipu Tip was in charge, but in 1886 he was in Zanzibar, and Tipu Tip's partner, Bwana Nzinga, deputised, heavily cancelled by one of Tipu Tip's sons, Rashid bin Muhammad Bio Said. Walter Dean, a British captain, was in command of the Congo Free State Station, who was supported by 32 Nigerian houses, led by Sergeant Major Musukuna, with 40 additional Bangala from the Central River Plateau. These settlements lived in mutual distrust, as Dean continued to harass the Arabs in an attempt to stop the exploitation of the tribes living there, 
until in July a woman from the Arab camp came to Dean seeking protection. She claimed that she was given to Tip by her father, but seeing that she was from a cannibal tribe, Tip had not cared for her, so she had been given to a cohort who had flogged her. Dean could find no evidence of hurt, and after deciding he couldn't interfere, sent her back to her husband. A few days later she returned, imploring him for more protection, and seeing the evidence of flogging, Dean decided that he would do so. This infuriated the Arab Swahili traders, and her husband, accompanied by the other leading men of the settlement, came to the Belgian station demanding her return. They left after their demands were unmet, with an ominous warning that Dean would regret his interference. Dean watched the Arab Manyema forces gather on the mainland, taking solace in his forces and in his two Krupp cannons. Most particularly, he took solace in the river steamer, named Le Stanley, which was to bring reinforcements to the boundary of Leopold's territory. It arrived later that month, and the Arabs, seeing this, started to make peace. This was particularly welcome, as in fact only one item had been unloaded. Lieutenant Dubois of the Belgian Lancers. There was no sign of the promised 10,000 cartridges or any more rifles. Dean wouldn't have gotten away with this, but his own Bangala, chatting to the Manyema Arabic allies, revealed this alarming fact. As soon as the Lestanley steamed back west, shepherded by the current, Dean heard the attack would be the next day. There were no war drums this time. They wanted the element of surprise. As dawn shone its light on the river and the jungle, they saw that hundreds of Manyema had crossed to the island in the night and built earthworks surrounding the station. As soon as their free state men revealed their heads, they were fired upon instantly. For two days this rifle fire was exchanged, with rapid fire stopping the numerous rush attacks rallied by the Arab allies. On day three the tactics changed. Dubois sallied out of the stockade, dispersing the attackers, capturing a drum and having his pistol holster shot off in the process. This led to a quiet night, but in the morning the reason for the quiet became clear. Earthworks had been moved forward and were now constructed right next to the station. Even more alarmingly, the Belgian station was running out of rifle ammunition. Dean fired the cannons relentlessly, losing part of his finger in the breach but carrying on out of desperation. They managed to hold back the rushes from close quarters until sunset, when Dubois once again rushed out to disrupt the attackers until all was quiet. So quiet that the Bangala, who were helping Dean at the station, got in their pirogues and followed the river 500 miles back home. This was not their fight, and they departed. The remnants defended again for an entire day, using the old flintlock muskets and cap guns out of the store to survive until nightfall. But in the evening the Hausu too decided this was not their fight, and they drifted off down the river after the Bangala. Dean was now left, with Lieutenant Dubois, Samba of the Arawimi people just to the north, who as a former slave had been freed by the state, Sergeant Major Masukanu, and his three remaining loyal Hausa. With just seven men, it was a desperate situation, and they knew they could not hold out. So they spiked the guns, spread oil everywhere, and led a powder trail as they headed to the river. The station burned as they dived into the river, but the trail was not complete and it didn't explode. Although they could see the foliage lit up by the flames as the river reflected the orange glow in the night. They did reach the river bank, but trying to rescue Dubois was too much. Weighed down by his boots and not even able to swim, the river had taken him. After four days of fighting, he was gone, taken by the River Congo.
The survivors played cat and mouse for the next month as they were hunted down until they eventually saw the steamer Association Internale Africaine puffing down the river. They were saved. But the station was now the Arabs, and the Congo Free State had suffered its first defeat. Dean's memoirs do not mention what happened to the woman, or her name, and I suspect we will never know what became of her. You would imagine that Tipu Tip, back in Zanzibar with the Sultan, would have been jubilant at this victory for his forces, but this was not the case. He had seen the seven German warships surrounding the island, and knew of the German claims to East Africa. He was aware of the industrial power that lay behind these vulnerable isolated foreigners who exposed themselves to the dangers of the unexplored. He knew that in the long term this was not a fight that could be won standing toe-to-toe with the new arrivals. Tipu Tip remained in Zanzibar for a number of years after the fighting, but in 1888 an old acquaintance came looking for help. It was Stanley. After seeing the Belgian incursions in the Western Congo and the build-up of the German navy in the east, we can never know if Tip would have changed his support for Stanley's journey all those years ago. If we recall at the time, Tip viewed the European explorers as interesting distractions, but times had changed. As we know in the meantime, Stanley had been employed by Leopold negotiating with chiefs in the West, and had even been at the Berlin Conference, albeit as a celebrity lobbyist. But his voice was now weak, greedier and louder voices spoke with much more impact. Stanley was in Africa for what was to be his last time. He had been sent as the leader of an expedition to resolve trouble which could have spread to the northeastern provinces of today's DRC. Whilst Leopold was claiming the Congo in the Central River Basin, the British had been continuing their obsession with the Nile. From the north they had settled all the way to where the Blue Nile and the White Nile meet, in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan. In January 1885, some of the Khartoum residents, known as Mahdists after their leader, Mohammed Ahmed bin Abd al-Ali, who they had called the Mahdi, rose up against British rule. After years of resentment at Turco-Egyptian rule and a successful campaign against them, the Mahdi then turned on their new rulers. To much alarm in Europe and of the colonial forces who were in North Africa, the whole Anglo garrison, including General Gordon, was overwhelmed and killed. This was relatively close to the northeastern border of the Congo Free State. After this conflict, and the Mahdi's death to Typhus, only six months after the victory, the Mahdists as a unified force were settled. Their interests and power extended to the ivory-rich and populous lands to the south, i.e. today's northeastern Congo. To some degree, they became akin to the Swahili Arab slave traders of the 1870s, and they turned into bands of ivory and slave traders. The area was rich enough, however, to warrant a continuation of British interest in the territory and these ambitions, intertwined with a heavy tint of revenge at the Gordon defeat, led to the appointment of a new governor of the region. His name was Emin Pasha, and he was a German doctor, stroke explorer, who was sent to replace the now deceased General Gordon. The governance of the area, however, was precarious. The Egyptians instructed Emin Pasha to abandon the Equator province entirely. He did so, although he was accompanied by 10,000 refugees, and 75 tonnes of ivory, and he sought refuge to the south of Khartoum. It is worth noting that 75 tonnes of ivory, yes 75 tonnes, represents at least 1,000 elephants, and extrapolating the annihilation of the elephant herds that we have seen before in today's Tanzania, we can assume that in the 1870s this area too would have been awash with elephant herds.
Leopold and his other expedition backers quickly saw an opportunity to espouse their moral righteousness and save Pasha. By sheer coincidence, of course, such an expedition would also have access to the Ivory Hall and would reinforce the legitimacy of the claim for the Northeastern Territory. It was decided that Stanley was to lead this expedition. Starting at the River Congo Atlantic mouth, they would travel up the River Congo and its tributary, the River Urumwe. They would then travel east, picking up Emin Pasha on the way to the Indian Ocean and ultimate safety. Knowing the troubles between the Arabs and the Congo Free State, Stanley sought the assistance of Tibu Tip to help with his travels in the region. Stanley knew that there was no easier way of avoiding conflict than by making their leader his friend. In return, Tipu Tip received money, of course, and amazingly, he became the employee of Leopold, with the recognition of his power in the central Congo basin, producing the practical solution that he could run the Kisangani station, then called Stanleyville, on behalf of the Congo Free State. As it turns out, the Emin Pasha relief expedition was a disaster. The column was split in two, with hundreds of men dying to disease, conflict, or poisoned arrows, which were used by the pygmies living in the area. Emin Pasha himself was actually reluctant to be saved. He was finally convinced to join the relief column, but ultimately he was unable to continue on to London. In Zanzibar, whilst celebrating at his own liberation party, he drank too much and fell out of a top-floor window, which necessitated an extended stay in the hospital. But the expedition is relevant to the Congo history for a number of reasons. It introduces us to the northern regions of today's Congo and allows us to see how the Anglo-Belgian Agreement of 1894 originated. The 1894 Agreement, although some years in the future, essentially created the northeastern borders of today's DRC. These are some way from the Nile, whose waters now lie within the borders of today's South Sudan and Uganda. Leopold never expanded as far here as he would have liked. More importantly, it also introduces us to the people of northeastern DRC for the first time. Peoples living in this area include the Alur, the Hema and the Lendu. There is also a minority Mobutu population, living mostly in the Aturi Forest near the Akapi Wildlife Reserve, where they live with the threat of deforestation. The Alur straddle today's Uganda and DRC, and the Hema are traditionally pastoralists, with the Lendu traditionally more focused on agriculture. Today, this land is within the modern DRC province of Ituru, on the northeastern borders. There are many tensions here, which manifest in conflict, and I urge the listener to investigate. As always, we must remind ourselves that history is not abstract. We should always have an eye on the present day, and the people living and working in today's amazing country. Back in the 19th century, though, Tipu Tip remained in Kisangani, as an employee of Leopold II. There he lived in luxury, and supported by the steamships coming up the river from the west, he could obtain everything he needed relatively easily. Life wasn't so easy for the peoples whose ancestors had lived along the riverbanks, though. But sometimes, just sometimes, there is a voice which talks through the ages to share the insight of the people caught up in events over which they had no power. And sometimes, that voice astonishes us through the energy of life in the face of adversity, which few of us could imagine. In the central Congo, that voice belongs to Disasi Makulu. We are lucky that in 1941, Disasi decided to sit down and tell the story of his life to his children. Disasi was one of the Turumbu tribe, 
living in the Bandeo village in the Vasoka territory, just over 100 miles downstream of Bioma Falls. He was a young boy who went to play in the local pool with his uncle when the Arabs came to capture them. He was taken to Kisangani, where he was held for ransom by Tipu Tip. His dad rushed to find the ransom, as any parent would, but although he found the ivory it was too late, he had already been passed to the slave traders, and there he was found when Stanley himself arrived. Stanley endeavoured to free as many people as he could, and Asasi amongst others was brought out of slavery. He was taken down the river, where they actually passed his home. Tassasi shouted in excitement, but he was forbidden to leave, and was told that he was travelling onwards for a better life. It was with great sadness that Tassasi passed his home, but amazingly, some cotton clothes made him feel loved. For the records, these are his words, not mine. I would ask any listeners who read French to find his book. It truly is a marvel, and a voice through the ages. It is, however, only available in French, so any mistakes in this story are due to my clumsy translation. Zutalor. It is here that we say goodbye to Stanley. The Emin Pasha relief expedition was his last visit to Africa, and he returned to England, no longer American, initially to praise and then to vilification as the disastrous expedition and modern judgment on relationships with the African peoples progressed. He got married and settled down, but he never forgot the land and friends he made in Central Africa. On his gravestone in South East England, he rests under the words given to him in jest, Bula Matari. Tassasi's unique window to the past highlights the tensions between the Congo Free State and the Arab Swahili merchants. They lived conflicting lives, one justifying itself by moral obligation, and one at least honest with itself with regards to the quest for profits. This was never going to last. The steamships and railways meant that no goods ever went east now, and the German possessions on the east coast left the Arab traders in today's DRC sandwiched inland between the Lomani and the Lualuba rivers. The Arab Swahili continuation of slavery was a constant course of tension. Added to this, the Belgians in their west and the Germans in their east imposed heavy taxes on goods, which took a large margin out of the exports to the foreign markets, which was the whole reason why the Arab Swahilis were there. Something had to give. And in 1892, it did. This was the start of the Belgian-Arab War in the eastern Congo. Next week, we shall see how this horrific conflict panned out. We know the winner, but the devastation wrought on the area by the war pretty much ruined the fragile society that remained. We shall see this next time, so until then, take care and safe travels.